Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to read verses 31 through 46. You can find this on the screen or in your bulletin. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And I want to invite you to stand as you're able uh, as we read God's word. This is God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. If you would lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would teach us right now, that you would that you would minister to your people and minister to those who are in here visiting this morning who may not be sure where they're at in their spiritual journey. Minister to all of us in here, Lord. Give us the distinct sense that we are hearing from you, that when scripture speaks, you speak. I pray that you would overcome the weakness of the messenger and bring forward your strong message. Your encouraging, hopeful message, your wisdom, your grace, your future, your kingdom. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a TV show that was on not too long ago called Undercover Boss. And the theme of this show is that top corporate executives... Uh, they, they go into their, their own business 
And they, and they go into their own business, but they go in disguised as an ordinary employee. They, they may have owned the business or started the business, but now they're going to enter into their business in disguise, cloaked, veiled. And at the beginning of each show, uh, we are told about how uh, this top executive built their company, how they created their company. And we learn about all of the, all of the, the things that they did to arrive at their level of success. And then there's a, there's a scene where we witness the transformation of the executive. Uh, they're, they're, they're given a wig or they're, they're given makeup or a mustache or, or some other you know, affect on their, on their appearance that does not allow you to, to tell that it's them. And then they go in and they begin to work as an ordinary employee in their own business. And here's the interesting thing. We, the viewer, can see what's happening, but for the employees of the company, they're just doing what they do on any ordinary work day. They're not putting it on for anyone watching. They're treating people the way that they always treat people. They're behaving the way they always behave. They're working the way they always work. They're relating to others the way they always relate to others. They just have no idea that they're actually relating to the very person who holds their job in his hands. They, don't, they have no idea they're relating to the person who built the company that employs them. They're just going through the motions. The executive goes unrecognized at this stage of the, sh- of the show. Their position, their authority, not, not, all of this is veiled. No, no one can see it except the viewers. The, 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 the executive may be treated well by the employees, or he may be treated poorly by the employees. We, we, we sit there and we watch the show in suspense. But every single episode builds toward a climax. Every episode builds toward the climax where the executive will be revealed in all of their authority. The executive will be revealed, unveiled before the employees. And it's at that moment that the story will be told. Because at the end of the show, when all of the employees are are clued in to to this this whole ruse that's been put on. You can see it written on their faces. The only thing that's going through their mind is how did I treat the undercover boss? They're thinking back on the way that they were. There's no time for redos. There's no time for fixing it up or prettying it up for qualifications. Everything was made clear by their actions toward the undercover boss. Back there in the past. They can't change that past. And then the executive gives reward to faithful employees. And unfaithful employees are terminated. This is the way it goes with each show. And in our passage for today, we learn that our lives are much like an episode of Undercover Boss. That's what our lives in this world are like. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shows up every day in the world that he created. And though we don't see his position and authority, he is there. He is present. And whether you realize it or not, you encounter him every day. 
You talk to him every day, some kind of way. You relate to him some kind of way every day. How you're treating the undercover boss, you may not realize at this moment. You may not realize it because his identity is concealed. His appearance is altered, as it were. We simply go through our days. It's another day. And I relate to people the way I always relate to people. And I talk to people the way I always talk to people. And I work the way I always work. And I deal with neighbors the way I always deal with neighbors. It seems pretty benign. It seems pretty whatever. That's the way we go through. But the the undercover boss is going unrecognized by us in this world. And all of this, this life, the story of the world... It's all driving toward the climactic moment where the undercover boss, the son of God, will be revealed in all his glory. And each one of us will have to give an account for how we treated him. Each one of us will have to give an account for how we related to the undercover boss. That's what this world is driving toward. There won't be any turning back the clock. There won't be any do-overs, no mulligans, no rewind. King Jesus will consummate the kingdom. He will bring it in fullness. And the faithful will inherit that kingdom. And the unfaithful will go away into eternal punishment. So this morning I want to talk about preparing for that final day. The title of the sermon is The Consummation of the Kingdom. It's the fullness, the fulfillment, the end goal of the kingdom. And in in that final day, there there is going to be a very harrowing ordeal that all of us have to face. And I want to help us to prepare for that day by seeing two points. We have to see judgment rightly, and we have to see people rightly. What do you have to do to prepare for that day? You have to see judgment rightly, and you have to see people rightly. So let's look at the first point, seeing judgment rightly. Now, just for context, this passage that we just read, it takes place three days before Jesus goes through suffering, the injustice of the court system and execution by the state. This is three days before he goes through that fate, which makes it particularly powerful That he would give this teaching in the last three days before he enters into that to his disciples who are gathered together. He's preparing them for what's ahead. And before he gives himself over to the injustice of the authorities and the brutal sufferings and the execution, he lays down this powerful teaching. What do they need to know about him? What do they need to keep in mind? These Jewish disciples who are following their Jewish rabbi. What do they need to remember? This is what he teaches them. Verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Not if. When. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. And all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, when people think about Jesus Christ, 
They typically think about the Jesus who is revealed in the earlier parts of the Gospels. They think about Jesus in his state of humiliation. Okay? You think about the meek and lowly Jesus, don't you? Who was near to sinners, who befriended the broken, who healed the sick. You think about that Jesus. But theologians help us to remember that there are two states that capture the life and and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to be fancy, it's called the status duplex in Latin. But it's the two states of Christ. Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. What he is saying to his disciples is this. Everything may look bleak when you consider me only in my humiliation. But you have to remember that I will come in my exaltation. This is not the end of the story, my friends. I am coming to judge. And that's the language of Jesus sitting on the throne. Judges sit on thrones. Kings who rule sit on thrones. That's the image here. He's inviting us to think on him when he comes in all of his glory as perfect judge. And we have to keep the two in tension. Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. Because you don't want to dumb down and weaken Jesus without understanding that there, he's not just the lamb. He's the lion. He's the judge. And in this passage, he's telling us that there will be a day when the son of God will come fully revealing his radiance and glory. You see, he he was the undercover boss. He was not recognized. But one day he's going to reveal himself. That's he's that he's guaranteeing us. We will see him as he is. And you know what he's doing? Jesus is doing something very powerful here. He's referencing a passage of scripture in Daniel chapter 7. Write that down and check it out. I'm going to read some of it to you right now, but I want you to see it in context. He's referencing a passage of scripture in Daniel 7, and what he's doing is he's identifying himself with the character in Daniel 7. Listen to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read four verses to you. Just listen to it and imagine it. Daniel's given a vision, and this is what he sees. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. Check it. Now look at what he sees. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming that that role belongs to him. He is the son of man. Yes, he's about to go through judgment. 
But the one who's about to be judged is himself, the eternal and ultimate judge. He is about to let his disciples know that no matter how far out evil gets a leash, it will answer to him. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't surprising for these disciples to hear that God's judgment was coming. This was not surprising. But it's hard to put into words what good news this message was for first century Jews who had faced the injustice of the surrounding nations for centuries with only one little small hiatus during the Maccabean period, during the revolt. They had been turned over again and again from one foreign ruler and oppressor to another. And there was no more hopeful message than God was coming to judge. That was such good news to them. You can almost hear this passage like this. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory. And that roarous applause is coming from the Jewish people. And all oppressed people who know God. Nothing could have made these disciples more happy and hopeful than the idea that judgment was coming. And this this sounds strange in our ears because the last thing that modern people typically want to hear about is judgment, right? How many of y'all get a little sheepish when the topic of judgment comes up in your Christian faith? All right, the rest of y'all are lying. We all feel squeamish. Oh, so you're one of those Christians who thinks about God judging people, right? Uh, You don't know what to do with it, right? Or you say, yes, yes, I am. But deep down inside, you're like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? You're starting to sweat. This sounds strange in our ears, but we need a new perspective on judgment. We need a new perspective on judgment, fam. You and I, as modern people, need a new perspective on judgment. And it comes in asking the question of why there is a difference between ancient people and modern people when it comes to the topic of judgment. I want to lay a few things out. Three. Three points. Three subpoints. Why is there a difference? First, here's why. Ancient people and Christians throughout history have understood that justice and judgment are two sides of the same coin. You hear everyone on the internet and on the Twitter sphere and on the social media talking about justice out this side of their mouth. And out this side of their mouth, they would reject everything about judgment. And here's the deal. You can't have both. I mean, you can't have it both ways on that front. You need justice in order to have you need judgment in order to have justice. There's no such thing as perfect justice without judgment. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. In order to establish the right and abolish the wrong, one must judge. These disciples were encouraged by the certainty of a cosmic judgment because it equaled the certainty of cosmic justice. They equated the two. And that's something that modern people do not see. God will set the world right. But second, I want to say this, just framing up justice and judgment. Okay, 
Most of us don't appreciate the historic and global difficulty of enduring a corrupt justice system. Most of us don't appreciate that. And I'm going to use a quote from C.S. Lewis to help you hear it. This is what Lewis says. In most places and times, it has been very difficult for the small man to get his case heard. The judge has to be bribed. If you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never reach court. Our judges do not receive bribes. We need not therefore be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets and all the scriptures are full of the longing for judgment and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news. Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. They know their case is unanswerable. If only it could be heard. When God comes to judge, at last it will. Now, if you have a hard time seeing or believing this, I want to encourage you to talk to our sisters at Grace Mosaic who work with IJM, International Justice Mission. I want you to ask them about the many people that they have served who labor under the oppression of systems, government systems, where they cannot get a hearing. And the work that they do is to tear down the corrupt justice system so that these folks can get a hearing, so that they can get justice. We don't have to typically deal with that, do we? And so we don't feel the need for justice and judgment. Every evil will be answered for. But a third reason for the difference between the ancients on judgment and moderns on judgment is related to the previous two. If we have a hard time with judgment, it's likely because we are culturally blinded by our privileged situation to global and historic reality and don't experience the overwhelming necessity of needing judgment. I'm going to say that again. If you have a problem with judgment, it's probably because you sit in a very privileged position relative to the rest of the globe and the rest of history, and you're culturally blinded to what it feels like to need and long for someone to judge. In other words, I want you to get in a time machine And I want you to go back and talk to the victims, the families of those thousands of people who were lynched and tell them that God doesn't judge. Go talk to them and tell me how stupid you feel, how foolish you feel. I want you to go back and talk to those whose families were imprisoned in camps and systematically executed in Germany. I want you to go talk to them and then tell them you don't believe in judgment. I want you to talk to the young women in East Asia who are caught up in the trafficking system and their bodies are being used unjustly. They are being oppressed and their humanity is being squashed. And I want you to tell them there's no judgment. Tell them. Go to any number of the people groups around the world and through time and tell them who have been oppressed, who have been under evil regimes and oppressive power, that there's no judgment. And then tell me 
how much sense that makes in your head. I want to say this is one of the reasons why we need a cross-cultural church in order to see scripture truly and clearly and the Christian life clearly and truly. This is where we high and mighty Western American people need to learn from the people around the globe because we're the ones who are who are peddling these ideas. No judgment. Don't, you can't judge. No judgment. That is, if, if we as Western Americans, Western people are the only ones who believe it, it's probably not true. Just a general idea. I want you to see that teaching on judgment is like a dog whistle. Only the poor and oppressed can hear it. Dogs have such good hearing that they can hear the whistle when we can't. And I want you to see that the poor and the oppressed, they can hear the call of judgment and justice in a way that you and I can't. So long as we're privileged and unwilling to identify with and sympathize with and see God's word with them. But the first disciples, this was good news. This was not disheartening. Let me say this. I just, this is just a, a word practically when it comes to politics and justice and judgment. I want you, conservative brothers and sisters, to make sure that you're not trying to conserve something that Jesus is going to judge. And I want you progressive brothers and sisters to make sure you're not aiming at a progress that is going to be judged by Christ on the final day. Not everything in our current way of American life should be conserved. And not all progress is true progress. We have to measure it by kingdom standards and know that judgment is coming. God will discern it. It's a word of wisdom to us. We have to see judgment rightly. But I want to move on to our second point. We have to see people rightly. Now look at the text, all right? Here's a brief layout of the text. The Son of Man comes in his glory with the angels. He sits on his throne. He gathers all the nations. There's a separation. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. And then he makes pronouncement. There's a question given at the pronouncement by each side. And then there's an answer given about the assignment. Okay? That's what we have, and it's repeated with the goats. Now, I want you to notice a few things in the text. First, I want you to notice that neither the sheep nor the goats express surprise at the fact of judgment. And neither the sheep nor the goats express surprise at their own assignment. They are surprised at the reason the Son of Man gives for the assignment. That they are admitted or excluded from the kingdom on the basis of of how they treated Jesus. They had no idea they were running into Jesus regularly and mistreating him. And some of them had no idea that they were running into Jesus regularly and treating him well. This is evidential. This is not causative, okay? This is evidence of the existence of their faith. It didn't cause them to gain entrance. It was evidence that they had the faith that would find entrance, okay? In other words, they were the real deal. 
the sheep, and they were not the real deal, the goats. Now I want you to see this. They didn't realize that the boss was undercover, concealing himself in the likeness of his disciples, particularly his poor and needy disciples. That's what I mean by bringing in the theme of the undercover boss. You encounter Jesus every day under the concealment. You encounter Jesus in his disciples, particularly his poor disciples. Now, this text is often used for the general treatment of the poor. But I want you to notice that this Jesus says, my brothers, and he never uses this phrase about people who are not disciples, who are Christians. But he also uses the phrase least of these to speak about those who are trampled on in social society. So we must say that this is about the treatment of Jesus people, particularly those who are poor. And on the social margins. Okay? Y'all tracking with me. Now, I want you to see this. He's referring to his disciples. He's referring, he's referring this teaching to help us to focus within the Christian community on the way that we treat people. The way that we treat Jesus' people. Now, here's the good news. And I want you to see how powerful this is. Jesus lives in such union with his people that how you treat his people is how you treat him. If you are his and you're facing mistreatment, justice belongs to the Lord. Justice belongs to the Lord. Jesus lives in such union with his people that how they're treated is how he's treated. Do you remember what happened? What Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what he says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To persecute the people of Jesus is to persecute him. And I'm telling you, each and every one of you who sits in the seat today, the way you treat his people is the way you treat him. Don't try to stick your treatment of Jesus into this category of, well, the way I treat Jesus is the way I deal with him in my quiet time. The way I treat Jesus is the way I deal with him in my prayer time. The way I treat Jesus is the way I, I, I operate on Sunday morning. Jesus said, the way you treat me is the way you treat my brothers and sisters, my people. Now, I want to tell you something to help you to appreciate it. How you treat my wife, Vanessa, is how you treat me. You cannot possibly believe that you can treat her poorly and you and I are going to be on good terms. It doesn't work like that. We are so closely related that if you mistreat her, you have mistreated me. And Jesus is saying that that his church, his bride is that way. If you mistreat his people, particularly his poor people, you mistreat him. Now, the good news for those who are facing mistreatment is that Jesus will not allow the mistreatment of his people to go unanswered. Now, I want you to see something. I want you to see something pastorally. And I'm going to try and put it in here pastorally. All right? How you, 
How you treat the Christian people in your life, especially the poor ones, is how you treat Jesus. How you treat your spouse is how you treat Jesus. Okay? <laughs> how would your conflicts change if you turned around to your spouse and say, okay, Jesus, listen. Jesus, I don't know how many times I didn't told you to take out the trash. <laughs> Tired of you, Jesus. All right? Let's make it real. Underground pastoral, okay? How would your words change after a long discussion of the day? Oh, I'm sorry, Jesus. I wasn't listening. Could you say that again? I wasn't paying attention. It, didn't, it wasn't, you know, important to me. Okay? How would your passive aggressive ways disappear? Oh yeah? I'm gonna show you just how mad you made me, Jesus. What's wrong with you? Nothing. I'll just do these dishes and then go to bed. Are you sure nothing's wrong? No, I'm fine, Jesus. Okay, I'm just trying some things. How would you train your affections when it's time to speak words of encouragement and affirmation? When it's time to, to bear up under their grief and their hardship? To just check on them. Okay? How you treat your spouse is how you treat Jesus. How you treat your CG is how you treat Jesus. Uh, you know, work was long today. I think I'll just blow Jesus off today. Do you show up? When, when the email comes in, how would you respond to the email if it came from Jesus? Well, I got plausible deniability that I have so many emails that I can just act like this one didn't get through or I missed it. Or that when it goes out into the Google group, Somebody else probably got it. Everyone does this. Someone else probably got it and nobody got it. Could you imagine Jesus sending an email out to a Christian church and the need is not met? A hundred and some people had the opportunity and everybody passed on it. How you treat your CG is how you treat Jesus. All right. It doesn't seem like it's getting home enough. How you treat your children is how you treat Jesus. Jesus, if I find another Cheerio <laughs> under this seat. Jesus, I told you to put your shoes on so we can get out this house. Jesus, get your arm in the sleeve. What have you done? You know what, Jesus? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just can't even talk to you right now, Jesus. Go to your room. <laughs> Right? Right? Oh, it hurts. No, Jesus. All right, I'm a real talk, real talk. 2.30 last night. I'm just fresh. This is fresh in my head. I'm studying this. I go to bed with this on my mind. And I hear, I'm like, all right. I jump up. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Jesus, how you, you okay? You okay, Jesus? You okay, Jesus? 
All right, let me massage that leg. It's, uh, you're getting cramps. Okay, all right. That was the first time. All right, 245. I was like, all right, Jesus needs a leg rub again. Okay, let me get up. And I go in. The cramps, still crying, still crying. The third time, I was like, Jesus? For real? I got to preach in the morning, Jesus. Don't you know I need some sleep? And it just made me laugh because I was just, it changed my perspective. And it helped me to soften my heart. Because if Jesus says, you know, Russ Whitfield, I was, I was in, woke up in the middle of the night, scared. And you didn't want to come for me. This is the real stuff. I want you to see this. This is so humbling, right? It just lights you up. If you don't see that you need grace from a passage like this, I, I don't know what will help you to see. I don't know. Because I want you to notice something about what Jesus lays out here. It's the pedantic, simple things. Feeding people. Giving them drinks. Giving them welcome. Visiting them. This is not heroic stuff. It's simple. And I want you to see that what Jesus notices are not the bad things that you have positively done against people. It's all the good things that you refused and failed to do. It's not the positive evils you did against someone. It's all the good that you withheld. Hey, I'm not hurting nobody. If that is your grid, you will live a pathetic life relationally. I'm not hurting nobody. Yeah, and you ain't blessing nobody either. The grid is not, I'm not hurting nobody. The grid is, what are you positively doing to bless and serve and care for and treat well Jesus in the form of his people? And guess what? I'm just going to give you a little pro tip. If you're not sure if they're Jesus' people, assume it. Assume they're Jesus' people. All of this dovetails, all of this is, this is like the wave that has been building up from the second sandbar. Giving, generosity. All of this series has been building to this because one day we're going to have to give an account. This shows up in the way that we deal with stewardship and our resources and our time. The whole of our lives being the real deal. Tender-hearted followers of Jesus. This has nothing to do with the consumeristic spirit that most of us bring to church and to spirituality. If you if your primary orientation is about what you can get out of it and what you can get from it, you're approaching it the wrong way because you will be judged upon your your giving your your your, your investment of yourself into it. Because remember, don't miss the forest for the trees. This is about authentic faith. What does authentic faith look like? And how will authentic faith be gauged in the end? And how you treated people. Practical ways to work this out. How do you practice this? I want to, I want to blow some wind under the wings of our diaconate. They are spearheading our efforts, particularly as it pertains to the least of these. When they put out calls, rise up, show up. That's a, that's a tangible way to do it. Support them. Ask them what they need. Get behind them. It's tangible ways. Tangible ways. Right after church, 
You need to go repent to Jesus in the in the person of your spouse, your children, your roommates. And you may not even have to go and repent to them for bad things you've done against them, but for all the good things you've withheld from them, the things you've failed to do. That's a good start. And then another practical way to work this out is to pray. Write yourself a note on an index card and lay it on the bedstand beside you. Every morning, who do I have to become? Somebody who loves Jesus as he shows up in the people around me. That's who you have to become to face the scrutiny of Jesus. It's simple acts of service. I like the way that one community worked this out. There was an old school cat named uh, Benedict. And he had a group of people that he gathered together. And they lived together as a Christian community. And they kind of set out a way of life together. They created a monastery. Okay, a monastery is a gathering of Christians. They live together as a family. And they all live according to a certain way of life, a rule. And they laid these rules down. They're, they're drawn from scripture. But then they agree to this way of life together. And in, in the rule of St. Benedict, rule 53 is on, is on the reception of guests. And this is what the Benedictine rule says. Just listen to this and picture it. Remember, monasteries were like the hotels of, of the old days. That's where all different kinds of people came and they found welcome. They found refreshment and hospitality. If they couldn't find it anywhere else, they found refuge in a monastery among Christians. This is what the rule says. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Two, proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith and to pilgrims. Once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers are to meet him with all the courtesy of love. First of all, they are to pray together and thus be united in peace. But prayer must always precede the kiss of peace because of the delusions of the devil. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure by a bow of the head or a complete prostration of the body. Christ is to be adored because he is indeed welcomed in them. Isn't that a powerful image? Every time guests came to a Benedictine monastery, those Benedictine monks prostrated themselves to say, I'm honoring you because in you I honor Christ. I'm welcoming you because in you I welcome Christ. I recognize Jesus in you and I treat you that way. What would happen if this way of thinking entered into our political discourse? What if this way of thinking entered into the way that we wrote emails? You're emailing Jesus. What if it got on the social media? You're tweeting Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus is wrong. You can be technically right and spiritually wrong. All the way wrong. By how you treat people with your words, your condescension, your self-righteousness, your pride that you always have the angle and they never do. We must humble ourselves on this. Last thing I'm going to close with. I want you to hear this quote of C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. This thing is powerful. 
I don't quote Lewis all the time, but when I do, it's that fire, okay? This is what Lewis says. Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. No ordinary people. Encounter Jesus in them. And no, you don't meet any ordinary people. Pray, Jesus, would you just help me to get the quick glimmer when I encounter and engage this person that it is you here. It is you here. And it is you with whom I deal. There are no ordinary people. There are no mere mortals. Let's pray that we will live out our faith, real, genuine, authentic faith in a way that will allow us to hear on that day inherit the kingdom, righteous ones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this challenging, difficult, penetrating scalpel of grace. Lord, we pray that the Jesus who is the king, who has been announced as the king, as the coming king, to restore his kingdom, to consummate it, that we would live in communion with you in such a way that we relate to you in the form of your people here on earth with such love commitment, service, and humility that we will find the kingly welcome that you extend to the righteous on that day. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in faith and repentance. We pray that you would grow us together, Lord. Help us to love one another enough to give the challenging words when we recognize that people in our community are not treating one another as Jesus. Help us to be courageous in our love and not lay back and let others destroy themselves by disregarding Jesus in the form of their brothers and sisters. By bailing on and being flaky when it comes to connectional and relational time. By being too busy for Jesus in the form of the community. Lord, in all the ways we need to repent and grow up in our faith, we pray that you would help us to hear the hard word of the kingdom the good word of the gospel, and the final word well done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.